Good morning. If you have a Bible, we're going to be in Micah chapter 5, Luke chapter 2, and Psalm 13. Maybe in that order. Last week, we, I started the sermon with a riveting set of jokes that just got so much you know, positive feedback. We actually had a bit of a snafu. I need to apologize for Jared, actually. He was telling my jokes last week, and he actually booed the jokes. <clears throat> and, you know, I said, Jared, you can't do that. An eight-year-old gave me that joke. <clears throat> so all week long, he's just been upset. I mean, inconsolable. He called me late last night, and he said, Chris, would you... I need a chance to redeem myself. Would you please just tell another couple of jokes so that I can laugh and not boo you and an eight-year-old? And I said, Jared, just this one time. So these are for you, Jared. (laughs) I enlisted the help of another eight-year-old, Dawson Gross. He lives in Auburn and roots for Auburn because he loves Jesus. And so (laughs) he... That's how it works, right? So here was his joke to me. Dawson said, what does Christmas and a cat in the desert have in common? They both have Sandy Claus. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Dawson. Neil wanted to get in on the fun, and so Monday morning early, Neil came to me and said, I got one. He said, what do you do when you cross a snowman and a vampire? What do you have? And I said, what? He said, frostbite. <laughs> yeah, that's good. That's good. That's good. Let's pray, because we need to. <laughs> Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you've spoken to us, and now, by the power of your Holy Spirit, would you help it? Come alive. Lord, we love you. We really do. And we thank you for loving us. In Jesus' good and powerful name, and everybody said, amen, amen. He thought he had it all figured out. He he really did. He thought because of his position of power and the control that he had over the people that he could really just do whatever he wanted to do. He actually thought he could take the role and play the role of God on earth. For most of the onlookers in the first century, it looked like this was actually the case. I mean, he would just give a decree, the decree would have to be carried out. No one, absolutely no one wanted to displease him, and no one ever crossed him. It was actually said that you were more safe in his house if you were one of his pets instead of of one of his family members, because he killed so many of them. His name was Octavian or Gaius Octavius, or as we know him by the name he gave himself, Caesar Augustus. Luke chapter 2 opens with the words, in those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. Just like that, he gave the order and the decree must be carried out. Now, if you were going to take a positive look at this man, you would say he's a brilliant statesman. He was Uh, really good politically. You would even say he was a great military leader. He was the great, uh, his great uncle was Julius Caesar, and Julius actually adopted him. The power, though, that Julius Caesar tried to amass in his lifetime was actually what led to his downfall, but Caesar Augustus gained much of the power that his uncle wanted for himself. 
Augustus nearly doubled the size of Rome, uh, taking over cultures with the famous Pax Romana or Roman peace. He transitioned Rome from a republic into an empire. He ushered in a time of great trade, unity, and stability for the massive empire. And again, it looked like Caesar was in control. It looked like he had all the power that he needed to control and run the empire. It looked like he could actually play God. In fact, he took a title for himself, and the title was Son of God. Caesar Augustus kept a diary. He titled his diary, The Deeds of Divine Augustus. That's called ego right there. The Deeds of Divine Augustus. Augustus. In that diary, he recorded, uh, recorded ordering several census throughout Rome. He did this in the year 28 BC, 8 BC, 14 AD. He did more localized ones around 8 BC, 2 BC, and 6 AD. Now, why would he do this? Why would he give a decree that everybody should be registered, that the people would go about and take a census? The answer is pretty simple. He wanted power, yes. He wanted control, absolutely. But he also wanted money. He wanted money. It was the census that helped establish the taxation of the people. The more people you have, the more money you have. It was that simple. And through the census, he would know where all the people were living. He would know how many people in every region that needed to be taxed, and he could then figure out how much money was going to come from each area. And Caesar needed money, of course. He needed money to fund his army. He needed money to build roads. He needed money to continue to expand the empire. But not only that, he wanted money for himself. We've all heard of the golden rule, right? He who has the gold rules. But here's the thing. The interesting part of this story is that Caesar's greed was actually playing into God's prophecies. Caesar's greed was actually helping the purposes of God. If we go to Micah chapter 5, Micah chapter 5, I want to pick it up in verse 2, and I want to look at a few verses here. In Micah chapter 5 verse 2, God has given a prophecy through the prophet Micah, and it begins, but you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, notice it's Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, the prophecy starts. Now, it points out that Bethlehem here is identified as Ephrathah. That is to distinguish it between the Bethlehem that's in the north of the country. This is the Bethlehem that's in the south of the country beside Jerusalem. There are two. And the focus here at the beginning of this prophecy is how small Bethlehem is. You see, a clan was a small grouping of families, and you put several clans together, and that's how you have a tribe. But the point that God is making through Micah here at the very beginning of this prophecy is that this place, Bethlehem, seems so insignificant. But notice what comes from this small, insignificant, obscure town are the very things that Caesar wants for himself. So the prophecy goes on. But you, O Bethlehem, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me... One who is to be ruler in Israel. The ruler is coming. The word ruler here means the one who will exercise dominion. You see, every time Caesar would issue a decree, that's what he was testing. 
He was pushing the borders of his perceived dominion. Do I still have the power and the control to issue a decree and then people still follow me? He wanted to be that kind of ruler who completely ruled. The prophecy goes on. From you shall come forth for me, one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is of old, from ancient days. The term ancient days, or as some of your translations say, ancient of days, refers to the one who would come to earth from eternity. And of course, this is what Caesar was claiming. Once Julius Caesar had been murdered, Caesar Augustus claimed that Julius had become a god. And then he said of himself that he was becoming immortal as well. That's why he took for himself the title Son of God. But the prophecy points out that there is one who is coming from ancient days, coming from eternity to earth. The prophecy goes on. Therefore he shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor has given birth. Then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel. Notice the mention here of the one who is in labor giving birth. Although Augustus made several claims about his birth, many historians point out that he claimed that he was the son of Apollo. Some people point out the fact that he said he was the son of Venus. Some people would point out that Augustus tried to trace his lineage back to Romulus, one of the founders of Rome. But what Caesar Augustus was doing is he was looking for divine origin in his birth narrative. He was looking for a point that he could point back to in time that made him seem divine. But the prophecy says that there is another son that is coming. There is a son who is coming from Israel to Israel for Israel and, in fact, the whole world. And while Caesar might claim that he had Israel's and the empire's best interest in mind, that interest was nowhere in his heart because Caesar cared about Caesar. He cared about himself and only himself. And the truth is, is that some people cannot overcome that primal instinct of self-centeredness and self-preservation. And Caesar could not. His world was about him. And he wanted the rest of the world to revolve around him. The prophecy goes on in verse 4. And he shall stand, the one who is coming, the ruler. He shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. Notice that the one who is coming is going to stand. He's not going to sit. He is going to stand. He's standing because he's actively shepherding his people. The identifier that we see here in Micah 2 verse 4, the identifier of the one who is going to come, the ruler who is going to come, is that he is going to identify as a shepherd. And from Egypt to Israel, all throughout the Near East, the symbol of a shepherd meant power and salvation. Both power, yes, but also power and salvation. While the shepherd was the one who was in charge of the flock, it was the shepherd when he had the staff in his hand. That staff represented that, yes, the shepherd is in control, but the shepherd cares for the flock. The shepherd actually cares for the people and is working for their salvation. While Caesar may have liked the symbol of a shepherd because of the power that came with it, the posture of a shepherd was something that he could never obtain because Caesar was about Caesar. He was about himself. 
But the prophecy goes on. And they shall dwell secure as a result of this ruler, this shepherd who is going to come. And they shall dwell secure, for now he shall be great to the ends of the earth, and he shall be their peace. This was Caesar's strategy. His strategy was to give the people security to the ends of the earth, if possible, and give them peace. The problem with this strategy is that the prophecy said that the Messiah shall be their peace. While Caesar tried to provide peace to the empire, he could never be that peace for the empire. Again, he thinks he's playing God on earth. But again, he's playing right into God's hand. How so, you may ask? Good question. So glad you asked it. While Caesar is thinking that he is building his empire, God is using him to establish his own kingdom. You see, it's through Caesar's decree that the people should go to their hometowns and be registered. It's through that decree that sent Joseph and Mary 100 miles back to Joseph's hometown to Bethlehem to participate in the census. While Caesar is thinking that he's about to line his pockets a little more and control the people a little more by knowing where they live, God was allowing him to think that he was building an earthly nation, but God was only doing this so that God may establish a holy nation. Caesar wanted a kingdom of power, but God wanted a kingdom of priests. And through his providential guiding hand, God was orchestrating the events of history right before Caesar's eyes. And here's the thing. Caesar did not recognize it. He couldn't see it. He couldn't see it. One of the number one reasons why we fail to see God's hand at work many times is because our eyes are on ourselves. You see, narcissism always kills spiritual awareness. We must have our eyes open and look out and see God's hand at work. Caesar could not do this. See, Caesar, he thought he was such a big man. Really what he was, was a bully with a title. That's really what he was. And when you try to make yourself big in history, you end up becoming a footnote. And Caesar became a footnote in Jesus' story. But many times we find ourselves, while the Caesars of the world are giving their decrees and their orders, we find ourselves playing the role of Joseph and Mary. This is Luke 2 now. Luke 2 verse 1 says, In those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that the world should be registered. Verse 3, And all went to be registered, each to his own town. Verse 4, and Joseph went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David. Verse 5, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And then verse 6, and while they were there, and while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. I've read that many times, and it's so interesting to me. Do you see the gap in the narrative? Let me read it again. And Joseph went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the text just says they went up 
And then while they were there, what happened in between verse 5 and verse 6? You see, while God is at work behind the scenes, Joseph and Mary are just walking. They're just traveling. They're just putting one foot in front of the other. You see, while Caesar is shouting, go register, God is whispering to Joseph and Mary, let's take a walk. What is not in detail in the narrative in this journey, or in the narrative, is this journey. This journey between verse 5 and verse 6. But could you imagine that journey for a moment? 100 miles from Nazareth to Bethlehem. No Ford truck, no Chevy Tahoe. No, no, no. No Toyota Camry, no Honda Fit. None of that. Miles in the hot sun, hours in the cold desert nights. No pop-up tent, no propane stove, no prepackaged snacks. Just one foot in front of the other for 100 miles. Now, I wanted some very accurate, precise information about this. So I went to the greatest researcher of all time, Dr. Google. And I asked Dr. Google, how long would it take to walk 100 miles? Well, I got immediate response. I didn't have to wait in line at all. Dr. Google said, ordinary people can walk two to three miles per hour. If we use the average speed of 2.5 miles per hour, 100 miles would take 40 hours. If you can walk eight hours a day, it would take you five days to complete the journey. Now, Dr. Google gave some very interesting other information about this. While it's given, you know, the doctor's given me the numbers, 2.5 hours, 100 miles, 40 hours, eight hours a day, take you five days. While all that's going on, Dr. Google says it would take you five days to complete the journey if you are not sick or bored during this time. Because <laughs> those would delay you. Dr. Google's so smart. <laughs> Tell you what. But I actually think Dr. Google's onto something here. Because many times when we're on our journey, we may, but not necessarily get sick on the journey, but sometimes we get sick of the journey. Sometimes we get bored on the journey. And being sick of something or being bored of something normally is an indicator that we are becoming impatient with something. I think one of the most important questions that we could ask ourselves as Christians, I think Mary and Joseph asked themselves this question over these hundred miles. One of the most important questions we can ask ourselves as Christians is, am I becoming impatient with God's patience? Am I becoming impatient with God's patience? Let me put it another way. Have you become impatient with God's providential history-guiding work? Do you find yourself asking the question, how long, God? Now, we have to be careful because there's a difference between patience and ignorance. We must not confuse God's patience as ignorance. God knows everything. Which means if God seems delayed, it's him being patient, not him being ignorant of the situation. But many times we become impatient with God's patience. And whenever that happens, we experience five 
particular emotions. I'll give them to you quickly. Number one, the first emotion that we experience when we're becoming impatient with God's patience is we feel forgotten. We feel forgotten. We say things like, God must not be thinking about me. Number two, when we are becoming impatient with God's patience, we feel unseen and unheard. We just feel like God is not watching. He's not listening to me. Number three, we be- when we become impatient with God's patience, we struggle to have hope for the future. It's hard to see past today. We say things like, God has no plan for me. When we're impatient with God's patience, number four, there's nothing but sorrow in the present. While we can't see past today, today is just not really that good, and we say things like, God is really not with me right now. And number five, when we become impatient with God's patience, we feel left behind while others seem to be moving forward. We say things like, God has given up on me. Here's the thing. If you've ever felt that emotion, if you ever thought that as a thought, then you're in good company because so has King David. He put it this way in Psalm 13. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? He feels forgotten. How long will you hide your face from me? He feels unseen and unheard. How long must I take counsel in my soul, which means to encourage something that's struggling? He doesn't see any hope for the future. How long, God, am I to have sorrow in my heart all the day? All the day? Just sorrow in the present. And then he says, how long shall my enemy be exalted over me? God, everybody else is moving forward and I feel left behind. I think those thoughts and feelings, along with others, were running through Joseph and Mary's mind as they traveled the gap between verse 5 and verse 6. 100 miles, 528,000 feet. That's 528,000 moments, points in time, when they could ask the question, how long? And I think they ask a lot of them. Joseph, how long, God? Until everyone finds out she's pregnant. Mary, how long, God, can I keep this hidden? Joseph, how long until my family in Bethlehem notices? Mary, how long can I avoid Joseph's family in Bethlehem? Very normal question. Joseph, how long until we see another sign of confirmation that this really is you, God? Mary, how long? How long can I go without knowing where this is going to lead us as a family? The question's on and on and on. How long? How long? The question is, how do we overcome these how long emotions? How do we make sure that we do not fall into a place of despair? David gives us the answer in Psalm 13, verse 5 and 6. After asking all of his how long questions, he says, But I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord, for he has dealt bountifully with me. David's answer to the how long questions that he was living with 
or threefold. Number one, trust in God's steadfast love. This is steadfast love. This is not conditional love. This is not wishy-washy love. This is not love that comes and goes. This is not love that's based on different levels of attraction. This is steadfast love, love that does not relent, love that does not give up, love that does not fail. That's what David was trusting in, the steadfast love of God. The second thing he says is that my heart will rejoice in your salvation, meaning the salvation that is to come. While David is trusting in God's steadfast love, he also rejoices in future salvation. You see, the answer to my how long questions, they may not come today. They may not come tomorrow, but they will come. God will bring salvation to my situation, and he will bring salvation to your situation. And that's when our how long questions turn into praises of thank you. And then the third thing that David said is, I'm going to sing. I'm going to sing. While I trust in God's steadfast love, while I rejoice in future salvation that I know will come, in the meantime, I'm going to sing. You know, sometimes we sing about what God has done. Sometimes we sing in anticipation of what God will do. And it is our trust in the steadfast love of God that pushes us to believe in that future salvation, that it will come. And then in the meantime, we learn to sing as if it's already here. You may today be asking yourself some how long questions. I don't know what they are, but I know we all ask them. Mary and Joseph probably thought that hundred mile journey was never going to end. And every few feet, another how long question came to mind. And sometimes it feels like we're living in a never ending story, a vicious cycle that seems to be on repeat. But you know, God loves to bring one sentence to an end and then help us begin another one. The gap between those two sentences may be long and painful, but the new sentence that God wants to write, he wants to write with his pen of providence. And when we let him, that next sentence, while the gap may have been long and painful, the next sentence is always for his glory and our good. And my prayer is that we would live with that reality, this advent. That I may be living with a how long question, just as Israel did for many, many years, waiting on the Messiah. But salvation will come to my situation. Amen? Father, we thank you. Because you promise salvation for us. And while we live with the how long questions of life, while we live in that gap sometimes between verse 5 and 6, that hundred mile journey where we're not really sure how it's all going to end and where it's all going to lead, Lord, in those moments we can trust your steadfast love. And in those moments we can sing. Because you always have a way of making a way. And for that, we say thank you. Lord, we love you. We really do. And we thank you for loving us. In Jesus' good and powerful name, amen.